Father in heaven, today we're grateful that you've given us this chance to spend time in your presence. Thank you for these young people and for their music of praise. Thank you for the familiar hymns, the words that come back to us. and They just inspire us of your majesty and your glory. And one day, Lord, we want to, we want to sing your praises with the band and the orchestra of heaven. What a day that will be. Today, we just want to pray that as we open your word, as we study, that your spirit would guide us, that you would be our teacher. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the only reason we're having this discussion here today, who is God, is because there's some question, there's some dispute, there's some disagreement or misunderstanding. In fact, there's something that we call character assassination. Have you ever heard of character assassination? Character assassination is defined as a, a, a deliberate and sustained process that aims to destroy the credibility and reputation of a person, institution, social group, or nation. Character assassination, unlike regular assassination where the person's literal life is taken, character assassina assassination attempts to remove much of a person's life or livelihood by destroying their name or reputation. In fact, there's a number of historical uh, instances of character assassination that we could point to. We could probably find some examples in current politics, but since I try to stay away from politics, I thought we'd go back, oh, maybe 200 years or so. And is that safe enough for us to look at politics 200 years ago? Okay, uh, John, uh, Je Thomas Jefferson hired a woman named James Callender to write about his opponent, James Madison, or John Adams. And he wrote that John Adams is a repulsive pedant, a gross hypocrite, and a hideous hermaphroditical character which has neither the force and firmness of a man nor the gentleness and sensibility of a woman. In fact, what Callender was trying to do was dehumanize John Adams, right? We call that character assassination. The Democrats called the Whig candidate, this is 1844, they called the Whig candidate Henry Clay on his supposed baggage train of gambling, dueling, womanizing, and by the eternal swearing. And uh, Clay lost the election in 1844. Another politically aligned newspaper told voters that Lincoln should not be elected president because he only changed his socks once every 10 days. Now, whether it was true or not, this is what we call character assassination, right? Character assassination. Moving on to the 1870s, opponents of General Rutherford B. Hayes spread around a rumor that he had shot his own mother in a fit of rage. Congressman Davy Crockett in 1836 accused candidate Martin Van Buren of secretly, mind you, wearing woman's clothing. He is laced up in corsets, such as women in town wear, and if possible, tighter than the best of them. Um, I suppose, yeah, well, we won't comment any more on that. And this is one of my favorite, if, uh, it's not a good word to use, but um, most, most, uh, most fascinating. A Whig pamphlet said Democrat Andrew Jackson was a gambler, a cockfighter, a slave trader, and the husband of a really fat wife. And this was an insult for which he never would forgive his opponents. It's character assassination, but today we're going to be talking about an, a character assassination of epic proportions. A character assassination may involve exaggeration, misleading half-truths, manipulation of facts to present an untrue picture of the targeted person. And in fact, character assassination uses many different techniques, such as doublespeak, spreading of rumors, innuendo, or deliberate misinformation on topics relating to the subject's morals, integrity, and reputation. It may involve spinning information that is technically true, but that is presented in a misleading manner or is presented without the necessary context. And I would propose to you, friends, that there has been a gargantuan character assassination on foot for over 6,000 years. Such acts as this are, care, are difficult to reverse, and once embedded in the mind, they become hard to remove, and that's why we're studying today, who is God. That's why we're going to look at the character assassination of the ages, coming face to face with the greatest 
assassination as well as character assassination of all time. And without this intentional, sustained, deliberate distortion of the character of God, we wouldn't need to be discussing this topic today. It all came about because of interpersonal conflict. And we're familiar with interpersonal conflict, right? We know what this is like. In fact, most of us have some understanding, at least to a limited degree, about character assassination. We've had things, we've had things said about us that were not true or were not presented in context, right? We all understand that. But this happened in our cosmic story because of an interpersonal conflict between two individuals. But this wasn't just an ordinary conflict. This you might call the, the mother and father of all spats and all dis disagreements and arguments. It took place at the very center of the universe. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. We're going to have a couple sections in here where we're going to be looking at the Scriptures. And so I, if you have your Bibles, have them out and handy. And as quickly as possible, we'll flip through these passages. Revelation chapter 12 and beginning in verse 7. When you're there, can you say amen? amen. Revelation 12 and verse 7. And there was war, where? In heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now this passage makes abundantly clear who the dragon is, doesn't it? It makes it very clear this is talking about the devil, it's talking about Satan. In a little while we're going to look at other passages that make abundantly clear who Michael is. And, but what we see here is in heaven, Michael and his angels, the devil and his angels, are having a conflict. Notice Michael is specifically singled out as the leader to whom uh, the, the devil is bringing this conflict. Michael is the one the devil is angry with, the one he is fighting with. Who is this Satan anyway? And if again you'll turn in your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 14. Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 14, we find here a story of, of amazing, amazing uh, consequence that took place in heaven. It says in verse 14, you are the anointed cherub that covers, the anointed angel that covers, the covering cherub, and I have set you so, you were upon the holy mountain of God, you have walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. You were perfect, verse 15, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. The story is of an angel found not only in the presence of God, in the, high, in the courts of God, but in the highest echelons of heaven's structure, you might say. He was a, one of those, the Bible says, angels that covers. And if we, if we remember the story of the throne of God, if we remember the story of Lucifer, we'll remember that Lucifer was the one who was right there closest to the very throne of God. In the, um, in the society of the angels, the created beings in heaven, you might say that Lucifer held the highest position that any angel could hold. He was the highest of the created beings. He was close to the throne of God. You know this, well, this is just a an artist's conception of the throne of God, but you see on either side the angels. You remember that when God told the Israelite people in the book of Exodus to build a sanctuary that he could dwell among them, he, he, he gave them specific instructions as to how to build the furniture. And in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, right there where the Shekinah glory dwelt, the most holy place, there was a mercy seat on the, in the center of the Ark of the Covenant, underneath which was the law of God, right? And on either side, there were two golden angels representing the two covering cherubs next to the throne of God. Lucifer was one of those closest to the throne of God. And so he would have been intimately acquainted with the plans and the purposes of the Trinity, Look with me back to Isaiah chapter 12. Isaiah chapter 12, and we'll read a little... Isaiah chapter 14, I'm sorry. And we're going to read a little further about Lucifer and his fall. Isaiah chapter 14, and beginning with verse 12. And this is the prophet Isaiah 
marveling that someone so close to God, someone so acquainted with the divine, should have fallen. And he says in verse 12, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation, the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. You see, Lucifer had a problem. Lucifer, being so close to the throne of God, began to think that somehow what God was doing, he might be able to do just as well. Somehow he began to think that even though he was exalted as high as God could possibly exalt a created being, he was not exalted enough. Somehow the worship that was directed toward God, and we're going to see especially towards Christ, brought a a tinge of resentment and jealousy in Lucifer's heart. And he began to covet the worship that Christ was receiving. He began to want what only God could have. And, uh, you know, it reminds me of what Abraham Lincoln said one time, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. So true, isn't it? So true. Um, Lucifer was given power. He was given prestige. He was given a high position, and yet this was his undoing. He was not able to stand in that type of a place not because God made him faulty. This is one thing that I don't propose to try to explain to you this morning. The Bible calls it the mystery of iniquity. How someone perfect, created by a perfect God, living in a perfect world with a perfect government, could have sin arise in his heart. And before I spend too much time dwelling on the mystery of iniquity, let me just remind you that the Bible also talks about a mystery of godliness. And the mystery of godliness is how a perfect God could come to a world like this and die and then co- and in covenant to live in the hearts of his creatures and restore them once again to heaven and eternity. Oh, I'm so thankful for for that second mystery. I would propose to you this morning that the jealousy that arose in Lucifer's heart was especially directed towards Jesus. Jesus, perhaps, because as the archangel, as the one often referred in the Old Testament to as the angel of the Lord, perhaps in his pre-incarnate form, He looked like one of the angels. Perhaps he was not obviously physically distinguished from the rest of the angels, the created beings. In fact, let's just go through a little Bible study about Jesus as the archangel, shall we? Let's look in our Bibles at a number of passages, and we're going to flip there very quickly, and we may not even look at all these verses. So if you're taking notes, you can write them down. But here we're going to begin with John chapter 5. And verses 26 and 27, that says, For as the Father has life in himself, so has he given to the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute a judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Notice verse 28. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice, in verse 29, shall come forth. They that have done good under the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. So the Bible here clearly tells us whose voice is going to raise the dead. Who does it say? It's Jesus' voice, right? The Son. Very clearly the Bible says this. Now turn with me then to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 16 and 17. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. And here we find another piece of the puzzle. We see here that Paul describes the second coming, the resurrection, in these words. Verse 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the what? The archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So according to Paul, whose voice will raise the dead? The archangel, right? So this makes sense to us that Jesus' voice raises the dead. The archangel's voice raises the dead. So... If A equals B, then B equals C, or if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C, right? And so we know that Jesus must be the, the archangel. Turn with me to one further scripture in Jude, the last, very last book just before Revelation. In fact, we almost can't call it a, a book, it's just a chapter. The very last chapter before Revelation. Jude, verse 9. Again, moving quickly, the Bible says, Yet Michael the archangel... When contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Jesus and go, going, uh, and so on. Now, here we find another clue, right? The Bible calls here in Jude, Michael the archangel. 
So Jesus is the archangel. The Mike, Michael is the archangel. That means Jesus is Michael. That's right. Remember that great controversy, that war in heaven that we were reading about in Revelation chapter 12? Michael and his angels were fighting. It's simply Jesus and his angels were fighting. Why? Perhaps because as the archangel, he was the one over the angels. Arc does not mean highest. It means the one over, right? That means the one that was responsible for the angels. Jesus as the archangel would be the natural object of Lucifer's envy, the natural object of his, uh, uh, his uh, coveting of Jesus' worship. We'll look back very quickly in the Old Testament now, in Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10, and we're going to look at how Michael is referenced in the Old Testament as well. And then we're going to look at some texts that talk about the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 10 and verse 13. This is talking about uh, when Daniel was praying. He was praying for the king of Persia. Um, he was praying that he would be... His heart would be touched that he would let God's people go back as Jeremiah had predicted and resettle, restore the promised land. Daniel chapter 10 and verse 13, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, or my margin says the first of the princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Fascinating story. Gabriel here, the angel of the Lord, is talking to Daniel. And he says, Daniel, you were praying. You were praying that, that the king of Persia would have a heart change. He'd let the Israelites go back and restore Jerusalem. And because you were praying, I, the, the angel of the Lord, went down to work upon the heart of the prince of Persia. And I was there for three weeks. Three weeks. Aren't you get glad that God doesn't just give up the first try? I mean, aren't you glad Daniel didn't give up the first try? He kept praying. Some, he couldn't see anything happening, but God was working, amen? Sometimes we don't see immediate answers to our prayers, and we think that God isn't hearing us. Listen, this tells us there's something going on behind the scenes that we don't always understand at face value. We don't always understand why our prayers aren't being answered, but it doesn't mean that God isn't working. For three weeks, Gabriel, the most powerful angel of heaven, second only to Lucifer before he fell, Gabriel was working upon the hearts, the heart of the king of Persia. And after three weeks, when he had made no progress, the king's heart was so cold and so hard and so resistant to the impressions that the angel was making, who was sent? Michael himself, Jesus himself was sent to work upon the heart of the king of Persia. How do you like that? Do you believe, friends, that God answers prayer? God would send the most powerful... He would send a member of the Godhead himself to work upon the heart of the king of Persia. Powerful story about an answer to prayer, Michael, in the Old Testament. But let's look back even further. Let's look back to the book of Genesis. And let's look back to Genesis chapter 16. And I want to just take us through a short journey here. We're going to begin with this concept of the angel of the Lord. And we're going to show that not only is this an angel or a messenger, as the word angel means... But it was also a fully divine being. Genesis chapter 16. And this is the story of Hagar in the desert. Notice with me verse 7. It says, And the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness. Now, if you have some of the newer translations, you're going to notice something. Angel is used throughout the Old Testament. But in some of the newer translations, you're going to find that the, particularly where the scholars have indicated that the, the Hebrew is specific, not only an angel, not a angel, but the angel of the Lord. You'll see a capital A in your translation, a capital A, because this is not an ordinary angel. Notice what it says, the angel of the Lord found her. Notice with me, if you skip down to verse 13, she called the name of the Lord that spoken to her, of who that spoke unto her? She recognized this to be the Lord that spoke unto her, and she said, Thou, God, seest me. Look with me a few chapters over to chapter 22. Chapter 22, and here we find the story in verse 12, beginning in verse 12, of Abraham. This is on Mount Moriah as he's just about to kill his son. Verse 12 says, verse 11 says, The angel of the Lord called him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And... Uh, the story goes on in verse 15. The angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time. He says, By myself I have swear, sworn, saith the Lord, because you have done this, that in blessing I will bless thee, and so forth. 
Abraham was in contact with the angel of the Lord. Look with me on a few further verses here. And uh, we're going to see that this angel of the Lord was not just an angel, not just a higher, exalted, created being. This angel of the Lord was actually fully God. Look with me in Exodus, Exodus chapter 3, and turn with me there. I know this is a lot of text this morning, but we're going to look through these, these slides very quickly, and then we're going to uh, get on with our message. I enjoy studying the Bible, do you? I think the Bible's words are more important than my words. Do you agree? All right, so Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, talking about the uh, Moses in the wilderness. Uh, actually, we'll start with verse 2, and it says, The angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. How do you like that? The angel of the Lord appeared to who? To Moses in what we call the burning bush. And um, by the way, I want to just take a moment to look at the context of this, shall we? Look at the context. Back up a few verses. There may be someone here who is struggling with the, struggling with the burdens of life. You know, sometimes, sometimes it seems like the road just gets rougher and the burden's heavier. You know what I'm talking about? And the Bible says in chapter 2 of Exodus, verse 23, it came to pass in the process of the time the king of, of Egypt died and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage. They cried and their cry came up to God by reason of their bondage. Notice with me verse 24. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And he, God, looked upon the respect, uh, God looked upon the children of Israel and had respect unto them. What this verse simply says, friends, is that God was aware of the trials and troubles his people were going through. The Bible says, right here is verse 24, God heard their Growing, groaning. But I want you to I want to point out something that's not obvious in the English. In verse 25, it says, God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. Do you see that phrase? I'm not sure exactly how it is in your translation. I have the King James here this morning. But God had respect unto them. The word used is the word that we often find in the Old Testament translated as new, as in Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and brought forth a son. The word that is used here to describe God's, God's knowledge of his people's troubles is the most intimate word the Hebrew language knows. You catch that? Sometimes we feel God's just somewhere off on his throne somewhere. God doesn't really care about the troubles I'm going through. It may seem like that at times, friends. But the Bible says that God looked upon the children of Israel and God knew. God was intimately connected with his people and he felt their pain. He knew their struggles. He knew their, knew their trials. And so because of that, he sent the angel of the Lord. Notice verse 2. The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a, in a, fire, in a flame of fire. And if we look on, we're not going to read the whole story. But it says in verse 4, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the midst of the bush and said to Moses, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. Who was that in the burning bush? Who was the angel of the Lord? That was God himself. In fact, he says here straight away down in verse 13, uh, verse 14, God said to Moses, I am that I am. You shall say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent you unto me. You see here we find evidence of the divinity of the angel of the Lord. In Exodus chapter 23, we find uh, another, another um, passage which also in indicates that there is a divinity, there's divine qualities to the angel of the Lord. Exodus chapter 23 and verse 20, this is God speaking, and he says, behold, I, that's God, send an angel before you. So here you have plurality in the Godhead, don't you? We're going to talk more about that this afternoon. We're going to talk about the Trinity and how we understand it. But here we says, I, God, send an angel before you. Now, is this just an ordinary angel? Even in the King James Bible, this angel is capitalized, right? And it says, verse 21, beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. This angel, my friends, has the power to forgive sins or not to forgive sins. That is a power that belongs only to God. 
a divine attribute this angel would have. We move on to Judges, and we're not going to look at all these passages, but there's just fascinating to me and see in the Old Testament the, the character of God and the, 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 uh, the definition of God that we find in the Word of God. Angel, uh, uh, in uh, Judges chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, we find the story of uh, the angel of the Lord appearing to uh, God's people. And uh, God speaks to them through the angel of the Lord. Skip down to Judges chapter 6, and this is the story of Gideon. In Judges chapter 6 and verse 11, we find it says, There came an angel of the Lord and sat under the oak. And this was actually not just an angel of the Lord, this was God. Notice with me verse 22. When Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord, Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God! Before, because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said unto him, Peace be unto you. Fear not, you shall not die. And again in, in chapter 13, we see the story of Manoah and his wife. This is the story of the birth of Samson. And once again, the angel of the Lord comes and he appears to him, uh, to first Manoah's wife and then Manoah, and uh, tells them they're going to have a son and so forth. And once again, they recognize they have not just seen an ordinary angel. They have come face to face with God. In Isaiah chapter 48, look with me there. We have uh, just a couple more passages. Isaiah chapter 48 and uh, verses 12 through 16. Isaiah 48, verses 12 through 16. This is a fascinating passage talking about the plurality of God. In this passage, we actually see, we actually see the Trinity. We actually see all three. Verse 12 says, Hearken to me, O Jacob, and Israel my called. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. Mine hand has laid the foundation of the earth. Uh, so forth and so on. Verse 15, I even I have spoken. Yea, I have called him. I have brought him. He shall, and he shall make his way prosperous. Verse 16, Come near unto me. Hear ye this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, there am I. And now the Lord God and His Spirit hath sent me. You see all three components there? God the Father, I the Creator, the I Am, and the Spirit. All right here in working in harmony together. And uh, moving on to Zechariah, we'll skip that and move to the New Testament. John chapter 1. John chapter 1, turn with me there. And I just, I just love this passage because it tells us once again of the most amazing mystery the world will ever know, that which we'll, we will contemplate throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. John chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Colossians Chapter 1, uh, chapter 2, I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16 says, For by Him, by Jesus, were all things created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created for Him and by Him. Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, in whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. You see, Jesus, my friends, was the Creator. And while He was here on this earth, Jesus claimed the prerogatives, the qualities that belong to God alone. For example, He claimed that He was the I Am in John 8 and verse 58. He claimed that He had power to forgive sin in Matthew 9 and verse 6 but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go into your house. Now you can see from these passages, this brief survey of the Old Testament into the, into the New Testament, you can see that Jesus is the I Am of the Old Testament. He is the one who appeared to Abraham and to Moses and to the prophets. Jesus is the one who gave the Decalogue on Mount Sinai, the one who delivered Israel from Egypt. Jesus is the creator of the heavens and the earth and everything they contain. And one thing is certain, before the fall of Lucifer, it was the pleasure, it was the honor, it was the glory of all the created hosts 
to honor and to worship and to adore, to bow down and to glorify Jesus, the one who had created them, the one who sustained them, the one who was eternally a part of the Godhead. But that would change. That would all change with this change in the heart of Lucifer that led to the character assassination we're talking about today. The angels joyfully acknowledged the supremacy of Christ and prostrating themselves before him poured out their love and adoration. Lucifer bowed with them for a time, but in his heart there was a strange, fierce conflict that even he did not fully understand. Truth and justice and loyalty were struggling for the ascendancy in his heart over the envy and jealousy that was also there. The influence of the holy angels around him for a time carried him with them. And as songs of praise ascended from the angelic choir, Lucifer would also join and praise them. His soul went out in harmony with the sinless worshipers and in love to the Father and the Son. But once more his desire for supremacy would return and his envy of Christ would grow stronger. The high honors conferred upon Lucifer were not enough for him. He, he wanted the brightness and exaltation and position of the Son of God. He was beloved and reverenced by the heavenly host. Angels delighted to execute His commands, but yet the Son of God was above Him. He shared, the Son of God shared the Father's counsels, while Lucifer was not privileged to thus enter into God's mind. Why, said this mighty angel, should Christ be honored above me? Why should he have the supremacy? And so Lucifer went about in the heavenly hosts to begin sowing seeds of discord and of doubt. He began to diffuse the spirit of discontentment among the angels. It might have been little innuendos at first, and not outright lies, but there were little things that he was saying to confuse their minds and to let them think that maybe there was something wrong with the government of heaven. Why do we have rules anyway? Why is there a law of God? Does God not trust us to be able to do the right thing? Aren't we perfect beings? Why is there such rigidity? Why is Christ exalted as if he had been artificially so? He began to insinuate doubts concerning the laws that governed heavenly beings, intimating that they were not necessary for perfect angels. They were unfair and unjust. And if Lucifer could but attain to his, his, uh, his appropriate place, he would be able to set things right. He would be able to make improvements. Don't you see how Lucifer, he came under the guise of trying to be on the angel side, just trying to help things, just trying to improve things. But was he really? He may have even, after a while, believed himself to be. But this was all a part of the great deception. Jesus, Lucifer presented the lordship of Christ as something that had been unfairly conferred upon him. He failed to recognize that intrinsically, organically, the angel of the Lord, Christ the I Am, the Son of God, was God. It wasn't something that was given to him. In Jesus was life, original, unborrowed and underived. Remember what we defined our character at assassination to be. And, in, and this is what Lucifer went about to do. And he went about to destroy in the minds of the universe, and he is going about still today to destroy in our minds an understanding of who God really is. Very quickly, let's look at this character assassination of such massive proportions. For example, we had we had a uh, Lucifer in the Garden of Eden, what did he tell Eve, try to confuse Eve with? He tried to tell Eve that what God had was, was limiting, what God had was keeping something good from her. And really, if, he, if she would take what he had to offer, she would gain something better, right? That God's is trying, God is trying to keep something good from you. What is the truth of the matter? The truth of the matter is that God knows what makes his creation happy, amen? God knows what's best for us. And, you know, I, I'll be honest with you. As a young person, I remember being struggling with this same, this same innuendo or doubt. Because on one hand, there's this, there's this sort of innate as, assumption 
because of the effectiveness of Satan's campaign. There's this innate assumption that we as humans have that somehow if we surrender our lives completely to Christ, we're going to miss out on something good. Have you ever had that feeling? Have you ever thought that? Like somehow we're going to miss out on I remember thinking that, and I remember struggling with this. And it takes faith, my friends, it takes faith, young people, to choose to believe that God who created you knows you better than you know yourself, and He has something better planned for you than you could plan for yourself. He has in, at heart the perfect happiness of all His creation. Amen? I remember when I was trying to decide what I was going to do for a career, I, the last thing I wanted to do was be a pastor. I had no intention of going to the ministry. I planned to go into a professional career, and uh, my family were professionals, and I just assumed that's what I was going to do. And even when I became convicted that God was calling to me in the ministry, I didn't want to do it, and there are specific reasons. Somehow in my mind, and we won't get into all that, somehow in my mind I thought I'm going to miss out on something that I would get, something fun, something, something good that I, I won't have if I surrender my heart and my will and my choice and my future. That's sometimes the hardest to surrender is our future. If I surrender it to Jesus, I'm going to miss out on something. Oh, I'm so glad now that I did. Because you know, the very things that I thought I was going to miss out on, God has a sense of humor. I got more of those than I would have ever gotten, guaranteed, if I had gone the way I wanted to go with my life. That's just the way God is. God gives us the desires of our heart. Now, it's, not tr it's true that he sometimes changes those desires so that they're the desires that will make us the happiest. But there's only one way. There's only one way humanity can ever experience the desires of their hearts, and that is by following God. Because godliness with contentment is great gain, and there is no such thing as having the desires of your heart without the Spirit of God living in you, without Him giving you the desires of your heart. Because no matter what you have, you still want more. No matter what you get, someone still has something else. And the only way we can truly be happy is to listen to what God's Word says about the Lord instead of what Satan's character assassination says. Another attack, Satan says, is that God restricts, restricts true freedom. He began that all the way back in the Garden of Eden. You want to be truly free? Don't worry about rules. Don't worry about law. God's law is restrictive. It's repressive. It's not freedom. Why can't we be free? Well, imagine living in a society where there was no rules and no rule of law. Is that freedom? That's what we call chaos. It's what we call anarchy. It's what we call terror. And it's distinctly opposed to freedom. Freedom is where there is a rule of law, where we can choose to be in that state, right? Now, I want to just say real quickly, I believe, I believe there is no such thing as freedom outside of the cross of Christ. I say that because when Eve took of that fruit, when she ate of the fruit and gave it to Adam, when, when they fell and humanity became a fallen race, we became the slaves of Satan. That is to say, in, of our, in ourselves, of our own strength, there's no way that we can resist the impulses that Satan brings to us. He knows how to play the instrument of our lives. He knows what to do to touch our buttons, to push our buttons, and to make us do what he wants. And we are powerless. That's not freedom, friends. Satan tells you it's freedom. It's like, oh, don't you want to be free to fly and to soar and have no restrictions? But he doesn't tell you that you're in a free fall without a parachute. That's not freedom. Freedom is being able to choose where you want to go and what you want to do. And the longer you live committed to Christ, surrendered to Christ, the longer you live with Christ, the more he will restore you in his image, which means the, the strengthening of your willpower the strengthening of your ability to do what you choose to do, that's how God created us in the beginning. The longer you live enslaved to Satan, the more you'll be addicted and wound about by the cords of, habit, of habits and connections and history and lies and bondage, and the more enslaved you'll become. Listen, it's not freedom. It's not, any, it's not freedom any more than jumping out of an airplane without a parachute is freedom. Someday I want to jump out of an airplane, by the way. I've never... Never done that. Um, I think it'd be a neat experience, but most of the time, as a pilot, it just doesn't make sense to me to f jump out of a perfectly good airplane. And so I'd rather just stay in the plane, you know. But uh, one thing I know is not freedom. Jumping out without a parachute. All right? It may have a great feeling for a while, but that sudden stop at the bottom is not freedom. And it's not what God ha wants for us.
The truth is that the only true freedom is found in Christ. I remember in Russia one time, there was a young, well, there was a question that came into my box at the, 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 the foot of the stage. I had a question box, and there was, there was about 60 to 70 questions a night that were coming into this box. And one question came into the box. Young people in Siberia, one young person asked this, this question, why do you come here and force us to believe what you believe? And that puzzled me for a while. Why would she think I'm forcing? I mean, look at the door. It's open. You don't, I didn't drag you in here. No one's keeping you in here. How are you being forced? Until I understood that, you know, often our concept of God is shaped by authority figures in our lives. And in post-communist Siberia, the authority figures in their lives were mostly the way the government operated. And the way the government operated was... This is truth, this is the maxim, this is the philosophy we're going to live, or we're going to deal with, and if you don't, you're going to be exiled to Siberia. Except I guess they couldn't be exiled to Siberia, they were already in Siberia, but it, you're going to face the consequences, right? And they thought God was the same way. They thought that if this was truth, they had no choice but to either accept it or be punished. The thumbscrews were going to come out, and God was going to take care of them if they didn't accept his truth. And boy, I had to back up a bit and explain, listen, God's not that way. You remember how I said we lost our freedom in the Garden of Eden? The ability to choose? We were destined to be lost? Except that Christ came and stretched out his arms and died. And what the cross of Christ did is not to force us to follow him. The cross of Christ gave us the freedom to choose life or death. Some people think the Statue of Liberty is the greatest symbol of human freedom. Listen to me, friends. The cross that was erected on Calvary is my greatest symbol of human freedom. Because Jesus loved your freedom so much. Jesus loved you so much that he said, I'm not going to stand by and let them die without a choice. I'm going to give them the privilege of choosing to either die or live. And you know, he loves us whether we choose either one. He does. We have the choice. It's freedom. The only true freedom is found in the cross of Christ. Another attack that Satan brings is that God is an angry tyrant. He's only here to be appeased. His favor earned. You've got to do good works. You've got to give your tithes and offerings. You better get up earlier and have your devotions. You've got to do all kinds of things to make God happy with you. Oh, there's so many times God's character has been distorted, not just outside of the church, but inside Christianity as well. Some of the greatest, most epic proportions or distortions of Christianity, of Christ, have come from within the Christian church. In fact, I, 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 one, the same series in Siberia, I remember there's a group of young people that were coming with, with uh, questions every single night. They were atheists. They didn't believe there was a God. And they'd come to me every night. They'd have written out on a piece of paper the question that, I, that was going to stump me, that I couldn't answer because this was about you know, religion and so forth. And I'd pull out my Bible and I'd tell them, well, I really don't believe that. This is what I believe. And they'd go away sort of, you know, their tail between their legs and talking among themselves in Russian. And, and the next night they'd be back with another question. Finally, the last night, they forgot, they, they gave up trying to write them all out. They actually brought the whole book they were copying them from. And they came to me that night and they, they started, they, they gave me one, they gave me another, and they gave me another, and they gave me another. They were just desperate to find something that I couldn't answer. You know what? Almost every challenge to Christianity they brought to me was from within Christianity itself about the character of I remember I mean they showed me the picture you see this picture in the Roman Empire that was the god of I think Jupiter that idol in Rome now they flip the page the same idol the same statue is now Peter what do you say about that well how do I answer that as a biblical Christian, I don't, believe, I don't worship idols, right? I, I believe that's a, that's a distortion of the truth, right? So almost every distortion they brought to me was from within a misunderstanding propagated by Christianity itself, and the Bible answered them. The Bible answered them. You see, we have a misunderstanding of the character of God. God is a loving God longing for relationship. And finally, the idea that God is unjust and unmerciful. Through mythology, through Greek and other traditions, through pagan ideas, 
God, the God of Scripture, became deranged or delimited to a God that is like the pagan gods, a God that is just wanting to punish people. And we have the idea this is going to be a subject of another, a later topic for us to look in the We Believe series. But the idea came into even the church that as soon as you die, you go to either heaven or hell, your punishment. And, and that, hev- that hell, if you go there, is going to be an eternally bor- burning torment. And so many people have come and talked to me and says, I can't believe in a God that would do that. For example, suppose a little shepherd boy back in 30 AD was picking up rocks and he threw it and he broke something in his neighbor's house and he never said he was sorry, never repaid it, and, and he never repented of his his sin or his anger, whatever caused him to do it. And so he died and is lost and he went to hell. How is it fair that that little shepherd boy who simply did something wrong and never repented of it, never confessed, never came to, to God as a savior, how is it that that little boy is going to burn in hell for 2,000 years longer than Hitler? Is that fair? Is that just? No, it's not. But do you know how the Bible has the answers to these types of challenges? even the ones that have become popular in the thinking, the Bible has the answers. God is not an unfair, unjust God, tyrant, uh, looking for uh, vengeance or uh, to get his, his way. God was actually willing to take our penalty. He was willing to, he was so committed to justice that he would die in our place. And that, my friends, is a God who could answer the objections that were brought to, all objections that are brought to him. Ultimately, the devil's character assassination became a literal assassination. Notice what Wikipedia says about character assassination in a totalitarian regime. The mobilization toward ruining the reputation of adversaries is the prelude to the mobilization of violence in order to annihilate them. Official dehumanization has always preceded the physical assault of the victims. And this is what happened when a rebel angel, not content to simply destroy the character, the reputation of God, decided that he could take him out physically. God couldn't use the devil's methods of lies and innuendos and half-truths. He was the truth. God is the truth. And if people could only see Him, know Him, they would know His character was nothing like Satan's mischaracterizations. And so we see Jesus being born, Jesus being raised as a young person, Jesus in His ministry, and finally Jesus at the cross. The Bible says the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us so that we could understand the character, the glory of God. This is why Jesus came. And the cross was the final cosmic showdown in this whole rivalry between Christ and Satan. Satan thought he would win by killing Jesus. But in reality, Satan lost. Satan lost. Because by killing the Son of God, Satan proved that all of the accusations he was making towards who God was supposed to be were really who he was. He was grasping for power. He was selfish. He was just trying to use people. He was a tyrant. And God was just the opposite. The cross of Calvary demonstrated that the character attributed to God and Satan's character assassination campaign was actually his own. As we linger at the cross, as we contemplate its themes, as we consider the love freely poured out on Calvary's mountain, we cannot but be drawn to a God who would go to such lengths to save a race deceived and lost. Our eyes are opened. Our hearts are touched. What about you this morning, friends? Which side are you on? Have you sometimes, like me, had your thinking warped by Satan's mega campaign of character assassination? Do you want to know the real God, the God of the Bible better? You want to spend time studying His Word and learning more about Him and knowing the plan that He has for your life? Is that your desire today? Would you like to say thank you, Jesus, for coming to show us who God is? Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
Today we're just so grateful that you have brought us to this time when we can just ponder what Calvary means. Lord, they were bold claims that the devil made. The only way you could make them obviously seen to be false was to give it time and to just live your heart the way you are. Thank you for sending us Jesus. Thank you for giving us in your word the testimony of who he was in the Old Testament and the New. Thank you that in this great controversy between Christ and Satan, we have the freedom today to choose which side we're on. Today, Father, you've seen the hands, and more than that, you've seen the hearts of those who are gathered here. There's some here today who want to say, Lord, I'm on your side. I want to be about undoing the devil's deceptions. I want to be about telling others the truth about Jesus, the truth about his word and his love and his soon return. Lord, there's some here today that, that want to say, I've been duped, I've been deceived, but I want the perfect happiness and freedom that only living for Jesus can bring. So Lord, bless them and bless each who may be in the valley of decision struggling with that choice. May the cross of Christ come very near. May they see that ultimately the devil's offerings are but a mirage while Jesus has the more abundant life his promise will give them. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.